We live in a pragmatic culture, and a lot of people would prefer that their pastor offer advice that is practical for the here and now rather than focusing on eternity. But today on Truth For Life, Alistair Begg explains how a solid understanding of the hope of salvation both shapes our lives in the present and gives us security for the future. Our study is drawn from the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. For 14 verses, he has been uh, providing what we've referred to as this great symphony of salvation, a great hymn of praise. He's been assuring his readers of all that is theirs in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now in verse 15, he moves from praise to prayer, and he's praying particularly that they might really see what they have. And on account of this, he says, verse 16, I am unceasingly thankful. I do not cease to give thanks for you, and I am purposefully prayerful, remembering you in my prayers. And what is he doing when he prays? Well, to what end does he pray? Well, again, he wants them to understand and enter into the benefits they have already received. You need to know this, because it will transform you both inside and outside. So he says, this is my prayer, that the eyes of your hearts will be illuminated so that you might know, so that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. That ought to take you back to verse 8, which we saw, and having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know. You see this knowledge, verse 17, know, verse 18. In other words, the mind matters. Your mind matters. So, these are the facts, he says. This is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus did. This is where Jesus is now. This is what Jesus has provided. Now, he says, I want you to know this. I want you to come to a knowledge of this, that it is the work of God, the Father Almighty, by the Spirit of God, to bring home the benefits that He has made available to us through the Son of God, so that the people of God might become all that He desires for them to be. In other words, you see that it is a Trinitarian thing that runs all the way through. What God the Father is engaged in, the Son is procuring, the Holy Spirit is applying. This is not Mormonism. This is not Jehovah's Witnesses. This is not Unitarianism. This is biblical Christianity, Trinitarian, and it runs at the very heart of Paul's concern. Now, there can be little doubt that the initial readers of this letter, like ourselves, had many practical pressing needs. They were a minority in a big kind of wicked city. They were being called to live a holy life and keep their head in the game, surrounded by erotic paraphernalia. I was driving in the car this morning. I was listening to a program from Norway, and uh, the person was explaining this great uh, celebration in Norway that comes uh, just before Lent and so on. And as it went on uh, through the thing, the gentleman asked the, the reporter, he says, uh, well, what is your most memorable uh, uh, experience of these uh, feasts in, uh, in, in Norway? What, what, what have you enjoyed the most? I mean, is it the, is it the food or, or the architecture, whatever it might be? Oh, no, no, says the girl. She says, the most memorable one is the, is the, the reading of erotic poetry. She says, they all gather in a large uh, square, 
and man after man and woman after woman stands up and reads out all this poetry. I said to myself, I'm an alien. I live in a strange world. That's abhorrent to me. Well, do you think these guys? They got Diana of the Ephesians. They, they, got, they got the whole sexual revolution going on all day, every day, right in their town. And they've been called to belong to Jesus and to live in holiness. What are they going to do with their families? How are they going to bring up their children? What about their employment? The culture's going south. Oh, dear, oh, dear, everything's terrible. Now, each area of those kind of concerns is entirely understandable and may in itself be an occasion for prayer. Paul to the Philippians says we should pray about everything. Yes, but fascinatingly here, he's not praying for their health. He's not praying for their employment. He's not actually addressing any of those practical issues. He's praying that the eyes of their hearts may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope, first of all, to which you have been called. You say, well, that's not very practical. It's intensely practical. And one of the reasons for the predicament of conservative evangelicalism, if I may say to you kindly, is a failure at this very level. Everywhere you go to preach and teach, the people are always saying, why haven't you told me what to do? Why haven't you given me something practical? Why are we not ticking the boxes, as it were, of all of my felt needs? And part of the answer to that is in the prayer of Paul. What you really need, he says, is a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. You need to know God. You need to know God. You feel yourself alone and left, and you don't have uh, friends, and nobody apparently is paying attention to you, and you, you do your Instagram, and you only get one response, and that's, that's from your Labrador dog, and you feel yourself alone in the world, so you want to come and have somebody help you and hold your hand. Let me tell you what you need. You need a knowledge of God. You need to know the hope to which He has called you in the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, that doesn't seem very practical. Let me tell you, that's exactly what it is. What is it that these people needed this week in the hospital? They need a knowledge of God. Who is God? He is the creator and the sustainer of everyone and everything. What kind of God is He? He is a kind God. He is slow to chide, and He's swift to bless. What kind of God is He? He is a God who understands our needs and provides for our needs and answers our needs. See what He's praying? That you might know that you might know these things. In other words, that the, the reality of what it means to be united with Christ and the benefits of what it means to be in Christ might be embraced by them and then might be lived in the light of them. I was greatly encouraged last Sunday night in our prayer time uh, by a number of things, but not least of all by the fact that the prayers had a strong flavor of this, a strong flavor of this, a realization that this is about the business of the kingdom, and that our eyes need to be opened to understand. Now, we won't get any further than the first, I think, of these three things, but you will see that he identifies three of them. The hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and the immeasurable greatness of his power towards those who believe. He's very specific. Uh, that you may know 
what is the hope. And someone said, well, wait a minute. How can you know the hope? I thought hope was all about uncertainty. I hope I don't trip. I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. I hope the stock market rectifies itself, or whatever it might be. There's got no, no sense of being able to uh, deal with it at all. No. You'll go wrong if you think of it in that way. The New Testament, when it uses hope like this, knows nothing of uncertainty. The hope to which he refers, that you may know what is the hope, it is the assurance of a reality that they have not yet fully experienced. The assurance of a reality that they have not yet fully experienced. They have been brought in to the promise and security of it. It is not in doubt. Those that he predestined, he also called to be conformed to the image of his Son. That which he has begun, he will bring to completion. Now he says, I'm praying that you might actually know the hope to which he has called you in Christ Jesus. It doesn't simply mean intellectually, but he means both intellectually and, if you like, viscerally experientially, objectively in the truth that is conveyed, subjectively in the reality of that truth taking hold of my heart. I'm going to die one day. What is my hope? Well, my hope is in the resurrection of Jesus. Well, how do you feel about that? Well, I don't know how I feel about it right now. Well, what, what do you want me to say? What, what matters is, is my faith there? Is that my hope? You see, this comes across at funerals very clearly. That's why uh, funerals, I think, are a wonderful opportunity for the gospel, because people haven't, haven't a clue what they're doing most of the time. And I often have people come to me after the words of committal, and they say, well, I, I don't see how that works. And what they're referring to is this. In the words of committal, for as much as it has pleased Almighty God of His great mercy— to receive unto himself the soul of our dear brother here departed. We therefore commit his body to the ground, ashes to ashes and dust to dust. Here we go. In the sure and certain hope of eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. And some bright 10-year-old always comes to me afterwards and says, well, wait a minute. How can you have a sure and certain hope? Aren't they antithetical? If it's hope, it can't be sure and certain. If it's sure and certain, it's not hope. So I have to explain to him. Now listen here, Colin. What it's referring to is a reality that is absolutely assured that is not yet fully experienced. And it is on the strength of that hope that we approach our own demise. And it is the absence of that hope which pervades secular funerals here in America. Some of you may read Joe Queenan in the Wall Street every so often. He's written a number of books. He's a funny fellow. He's a little bit cynical, but uh, he's very clever as well. And in one of his books called Balsamic Dreams— which is an older book now, he wrote in a chapter there uh, about the baby boomer generation of which he is a part, and the way in particular, he says, they have attempted to cover up and to deny the pervasive sense of hopelessness, which is uh, part and parcel of the average funeral. And he goes to some length to take on uh, the deal, and he says, unable to face the reality of our mortality, we turn it into a party. We turn it into a video show. We turn it into whatever we can turn it into to try and deny the reality of death itself. Why is that? Well, when we get to chapter 2, Paul is going to remind those to whom he writes that they were formerly without God and without hope in the world. 
No God, no hope. N-O, N-O. No God, no hope. K-N-O-W, K-N-O-W. So here's the real thing. Do you have this hope? Is this, is this descriptive of you? Have the blessings that God has provided in Jesus laid hold upon your heart and mind in such a way that they have become personal to you, that in every realistic sense, your entire confidence, both in life and in death, is grounded in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if not, can I ask you what your plan is? I mean, what, what is your plan? Let's just be straightforward for a moment. You're not supposed to talk about this. It gets people upset. But the Bible says that when we die, we will meet God, right? We got an appointment. So therefore, whether you die as a believer or as an unbeliever, you are going to be raised from the dead. When you get raised from the dead, that's you forever either in the presence of God, which the Bible calls heaven, or absent the presence of God, which the Bible calls hell. The story of the Bible is the story of a God who seeks out people who are hiding from him. Adam and Eve. The thing goes pear-shaped. As a result of their rebellion, they are now hiding in the deeper part of the garden. God doesn't say, well, fair enough, go ahead and do what you want. No, he comes. He says, Adam, where are you? He comes to those of us who are hiding from him. And he says, hey, why are you hiding? Don't you know the provision that I have made for you in Jesus? Don't you know that I have loved you? to such an extent that I sent my son to take the place of your judgment so that you need never fear judgment on that day. Don't you know that I have made this available to you? The person says, well, yeah, I, yeah, I guess so. I mean, my, my wife, she kind of likes that stuff, but for me, nah, I don't think so. Or as for my dad or my sibling. Well, let me ask you then. Oh, sinner man, where are you going to run to? Where are you going to run to on that day? It is a day that is absolutely fixed. It's going to be entirely fair, and it's completely final. I mean, if I can't woo you by the immensity of the endearing love of God, let me at least try to scare you off the fence. Now, be sensible. You have an insurance policy, Mr. Businessman. It's for way more than you're worth. You understand that. Why have you taken that out? Because you know you're going to die. When you die, there is yet more to come. Listen to the picture of those who said no to God's salvation in time, and then they tried to hide from God uh, when, uh, when the chips were down. Revelation chapter 6 and verse 15, then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us 
and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Loved ones, when we sing about the wrath of God and Christ bearing the wrath of God, this is what we're singing about, that Christ has entered into time to bear in himself the punishment that we deserve and to grant to us a forgiveness that we don't deserve. And faith is a decisive act, and it is a sustained attitude. It has to have a beginning. There has to be a point at which you say to yourself, I'm in, I'm on. I trust. I believe. If you don't, then get ready to join the group in Revelation 6. What an irony. You're going to ask creation to hide you from the Creator? You're going to ask the rocks to hide you? Did you never hear the hymn? Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. You see, there is no refuge from him, only in him. In him. And that's why as long as you have life, and you have breath, and you have ears, if you would only listen with all the ears of your heart, if you would only look with all the eyes of your heart, if the Spirit of God will illumine your mind, then today would be the day when you would be able to say, you know, I once was blind, but believed I knew everything. I was so smart, you know. I was this. I was that. I had it done. And then something came knocking on my door. Maybe a grandchild. Maybe a little hymn. Maybe a friend with a book. Maybe somebody's life unraveling and them testifying to faith in Jesus. And you said to yourself, you know what? I better consider this. But my friends, if you don't, that's what awaits you. Call on the mountains and the rocks. Fall on us. Kill us. They can't kill you. You're going to live forever. The only question is where? I don't know about you, but I'd be making my plans real soon. I wouldn't be going out of this door saying, you know what? I'll take my chances. Again, I say to you, this is not mindlessness. This is not taking your head out of the game, some leap into esoteric subjectivism. This is actually the same process that you use in your business or in your science or in your reading of a novel. What are the facts? The facts are these. God in Christ reconciles the world to himself, and he asks you, invites you, to receive that reconciliation. He was not counting their sins against them, 2 Corinthians 5, because he was counting their sins against him. And therefore, it is in him that our confidence lies. I find myself rehearsing McShane's lines. My knowledge of that life is small. The eye of faith is dim. It is enough that Christ knows all, and I shall be with him. What makes that true? The strength of your conviction? 
No. The trustworthiness of his promise. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and receive you to myself so that you might be where I am. Do you remember, do you remember when you were 14 and, and uh, it was freezing and, uh, and you, you, your father knew you had to be home by a certain time and he, and he made your bed up for you? In my case, he put a hot water bottle in my bed. I can still remember the thrill of that. How kind of you, Dad. You prepared this for me? Yeah. I was looking forward to you coming. I got your room ready for you. The resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, the promise of Jesus. I got your room ready for you. You coming? Looking ahead to our eternal home, that has an impact on our priorities in the present. You're listening to Truth For Life, and Alistair Begg has titled today's message, The Eyes of Your Heart. Alistair will close with prayer in just a minute, so please keep listening. Well, if you have been a believer for some time, today's subject may have seemed rather foundational, but as Alistair often says when it comes to the Scripture, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. It's important for us to remain rooted in the basics of the gospel, to never lose sight of the essentials. And this is true for us as individuals. It's also true for us as church congregations. Part of our desire at Truth For Life is to support local churches. That's why we're making a book available today that highlights the main and plain truths that every healthy church must believe, follow, and proclaim. It's a book titled The Heart of the Church, and it's written by author and pastor Joe Thorne. Whether you're a pastor, an elder, a small group leader, or a member of a congregation, you'll benefit from a renewed commitment to the centrality of the gospel within the mission of the church. And if you're currently in the process of searching for a church home, this book will be an excellent guide to help you in that important decision. You're invited to request a copy of the book, The Heart of the Church, as our way of saying thank you as you donate to support this ministry, or when you make your first gift as a monthly truth partner. As a truth partner, the benefits are twofold. You're able to request two featured resources each month to strengthen your own understanding of Scripture, and you'll enjoy knowing that your support gives the gift of the gospel to fellow listeners. So become a truth partner today or make a generous one-time donation at truthforlife.org slash donate or call 888-588-7884. If you'd prefer to send your gift in the mail, write to Truth For Life at P.O. Box 39 Cleveland, Ohio, 44139. Now here's Alistair to close with prayer. Look upon us, gracious God, in your mercy and in your grace. Grant that the eyes of our hearts may be illumined. Some of us are not buying this story. Some of us are wandering and wondering. Some of us are ready to get right down off the fence and take our stand with you. 
Accomplish your purposes, Lord, we pray. We sow the seed. We can water it a little by our prayers, but only you can make it grow. Hear our prayers for Christ's sake. Amen. I'm Bob Lapine, hoping you'll join us Tuesday as we continue our study in Ephesians called Grace and Peace. The Bible teaching of Alistair Begg is furnished by Truth For Life, where the learning is for living.